This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The following program includes themes of suicide and sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. The 2021 Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival was held in Aotearoa, Dunedin, our UNESCO City of Literature, from the 6th until the 9th of May. In this podcast series, we share recordings from these sessions with you. In Navigating the Stars, Witi Ihimaira talks to Jacinta Ruru about tracing the history of Māori people through their creation myths, presented by the University Bookshop. Um, I feel, aren't we lucky? I just feel enormously lucky to be here this evening. <laughs> Well, I'm feeling a bit scared because, uh, well, you know, <laughs> and see Ollie Olsen down there. Well, people say that I look like him, so I actually said, I'll put this coat on you and you can come up here and do me. Stand up, Ollie, so they can see that you look more handsome than I do. <laughs> they really were. They were down in Nova Cafe, switching jackets. So, Witty, um, look, you've had a profound effect on me, and I know that's a similar story probably for many of us in the room. And I just wanted to reflect back when I was 15 years old, um, growing up very much in a Pākehā um, environment in Queenstown um, at Wakatipu High School there, and my English teacher gave me your story, Yellow Brick Road, and it was the first time I had um, ever come across Māori writing. And... And your writing spoke about racism and colonisation and that writing really led me on my whole path for um, my career going forward and it was that piece of work I often reflect back on and sent me on my journey to university. So it's a... (laughs) Follow the yellow brick road. Follow the yellow brick road. Follow, 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 follow the yellow brick road. We're off to see the wonderful Wizard of Oz. Well, you know, there's three characters in that. The Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion, and the other one, Straw Man. Which one do you think I was? Cowardly Lion. (laughs) So, look, we're really thrilled to be able to sit here with you this evening. And to be in conversation um, with what must be, I think, the landmark book of our generation, and I don't say that lightly, I think it's a book that um, we've been waiting for for a long time, and I think of it as an intergenerational taonga, and so I'm just really touched to have this opportunity to be sitting with you um, at this stage of your career where you've been able to um, produce this book for us, and it's an incredible gift. So I'm going to start, um, and my first question to you is a really broad one, and asking you about how did this book come about? Well, um, in 2019, I just uh, published um, the second volume of my memoirs, which is Native Son. So I had been scraping my heart out with this book, and I said to my publisher, you know, I don't want to write another book for four years. I have to get over this one because it's really kicked the shit out of me. It, it, It went so deep, and it was about so many different issues that we are all facing Um, today. And she said, so what are you going to do in these next four years? And I said, well, I'm going to take a break. And she said, four years? What are you going to do? (laughs) 
So I went home and I rang her up two days later and I said to her, well, you know, as the, um, the, the uh, American columnist Dan Landers said, things are always darkest before they're totally black. And so you have now made my life totally black by asking me what I'm going to do. And what I'm going to do is I've, I've always had this interesting book to write um, about mythology. And she said, stay right where you are. I'm sending you a contract right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I, I hope many of you have already had the chance to read the book. But for those of you that have not had a chance to read the book, um, can you tell us what the book covers and what makes it special? Well, um, Actually, I never really realised, but, you know, with the, with the, um, the memoirs, both of them, they're actually a whakapapa, a mm. personal whakapapa. But with this one, and you're quite right, you know, what I wanted to do was to write this one as a whakapapa. Well, in my own, it was trouble enough because um, there are enough people in my family, you know, my mother was one of 15 and my father was one of 16, and if you're a Pākehā writer, you don't have to worry about any, anything like that, you know, doing the whole whakapapa of a whole tribe. So what I was doing was not only writing a personal whakapapa, I was also writing the tribe. But with, <laughs> with, with um, uh, um, this book, Navigating the Scar- Stars, well, it starts, you know, so far, far way back. It starts from the beginning of time, and I realised that what I was doing was actually a cast of millions. Mm. And when you're faced with that cast of millions, that's what makes the, makes the book different. It's a wider perspective. It technically meant that I had to engage with a colossal structure. And that's why, I guess, why books of Māori mythology are really only disparate collections of short stories. So my, um, my um, um, structure was, was that big, and I wanted to make it like a history. I wanted to make it like a history of the Māori from the very beginning of time until, mm. until now. And I wanted to write it almost as if I was writing a novel, in fact. So that's the great thing about, about how easy it became then. It became this kind of book that was a waka filled with all of these singing and chanting paddlers. You know, it was, it was so wonderful that way. <laughs> the only worry was that I thought that it might be so heavy that um, I would sink it while I was, I was writing it. So at the very beginning, I used a karakia to launch it. Ta kina kina te waka. Ka tere hiha, ka tere te waka. Ka tere na tai waiho kia kawana. Launch the canoe, float it out on the tide. Now leave it to swim. And what a relief since the launch that the book has been swimming well. And it has. And when you talk about that cast of a millions, that is really obvious when you open the first few pages and you just have that incredible journey that you take us on in the book. Um, and it's so different to just the simple story that we're told of Papa Tūnuku and Ranganui and you know, a few siblings in between. And So I wonder if you can maybe talk to us about the story of the book. Well, I guess you all have been to see Star Wars. You know what Star Wars. Well, mine begins too in a galaxy far, far <laughs> away, where light is being created out of darkness, and even further back, darkness out of Tikore. And from then, out of this cosmic cor- corridor comes Earth and sky, and the birth of their sons. Well, they had over seventy in all, which is quite a lot for a mother mm. to bear. Um, one of them, Tane, is a bit of a badass and he convinces his other brothers to join him in a revolt against the parents by separating them. But dissension over the separation causes the brothers to wage three long wars with each other. 
Which Tane and his supporters win? In the time of peace that follows, the world flourishes, but one thing is missing, and that's us, humankind. So then the book does a bit of a spiral and traces Māori from our origins in Africa. You knew that Māori came from Africa, don't you? Yeah, so it's about that. It's about our origins in Africa, migration across Asia to Taiwan, and then from Taiwan into Raiatea in French Polynesia. I had a fantastic time writing this book, I tell you. And then that's where we um, come into, into our importance. And the stories then turn to the first generation of the human species and our interactions as we battle the gods who made us, the ferocious monsters and interspecies known as the Tūrehu, the fairy folk of Hawaii. And then having populated the entire Pacific, those people come down to what we call Hawaii Toto, which is New Zealand hanging here in anticipation. Well, I was going to stop actually before then, but uh, you know, the whole of the Walker journeying made me want to you know, press on and do that. Um, and I think Professor Lisa Matasu-Smith, um, the biological anthropologist, still does her work mm. from here in Dunedin, doesn't she? Yes. Um, And she leads from Otago the DNA research mapping human migration. Well, for those of you who don't know, Māori are considered to be the youngest, the youngest of the Polynesian people, and certainly the ones who have taken the longest and last of of the journeys out of Africa. And it was the most incredible, incredible journey that um, did take place there. So how long did this book take to write? Um... I get embarrassed about talking about this because it took, only took me six months. I, as I say, I had just finished doing, um, and, and I can prove it, I had just finished <laughs> launching uh, uh, Native Sun in September uh, 2019. And this book ca- um, was finished in February the, uh, 2020. But I needed to finish it by February 2020 because then the publishers needed to get it together and put it together for me for its publication in September of last year. So it came out in September 2020. I had scraped my heart out with Native Son, and I scraped my skull out (laughs) with this book. I had no time to do it, but I made the time. Um, Indeed, a a writer colleague of mine, Philip Temple, he might be here tonight, but he's uh, a good friend of mine. I saw him last night, um, and he lives here in... Uh, Ote Poti. And some years ago, he proposed an all-black first 15 of New Zealand writers, which included Morris G at fullback, Lloyd-Jones at centre, and other literary luminaries like Owen Marshall um, in the forwards and backs. And he put me in the team as halfback. Why? Because I was fast on my feet. I was opportunistic. I was slippery behind the scrum. And I sold the perfect dummy. <laughs> now, in those days, you know, I used to think those were compliments. But when I, <laughs> but when I saw Philip, I suddenly thought, hey, Philip, that wasn't really compliments, were they? And he said, well, actually, no. <laughs> so I write in the moment what Māori called the inayane. And I think that when you love and are excited by what, by what you're doing, the energy and the spontaneity of it, the mana, the ihi, the wehi, the aroha, as well as the wero, the challenge of it, creates a kind of spontaneous combustion. So I exploded over six months. And the words just kept on coming up and out 
without even hitting the sides. And I'm really grateful for that, Jacinta. But, I, but, but I'm just also going to ask about... Um, the book had actually been waiting for you to do oh, for a yeah. long time. And, and here yeah. you talk about trying to write this book yeah. um, over about three times in your career. Oh, you know, yeah. yeah. Ever since I was a child, I've been trying to write this book. Ever since I was a kid. And I was one of those snotty nose kids. I'm, I, wasn't, I, d- I don't look as superb as I do now. I mean, in those days, <laughs> I was nothing like this. I was like my, my um, little rat bag um, uh, uh, grandson, Ben you know, who's unfortunately going to follow in my footsteps. <laughs> As a child, I simply loved going down to the marae to hear the stories of our ancestors, what Māori call ngā mahi a ngā tupuna, you know, mm. the work of our tupuna. And some people will know that by the time I was 11, I was writing with a pencil stories on my bedroom walls at the farm on the Whakaro Road, just outside of Tekaraka. So I like to think of them as my earliest cave drawings. <laughs> and they're like those figures that can be found at Wadi Sura in southwest Egypt near the Libyan border. Have any of you been there? Well, there are these caves and they're filled with these magnificent dream-swimming people and filled with these magnificent animals and birds. It's just the most wonderful, wonderful, inspirational place. And my, my dreams were like that, you know. They were filled with all of these exciting stories that I was, I was hearing um, from my nanny Teria and from my other nannies and my father Tom, you know. They were so patient with me. Um, we didn't have uh, electricity at the time, but my mother Julia would allow us enough oil in the lamp for us, my sisters and I, to, um, to have maybe half an hour before the, the light um, disappeared. And then I would then um, write these stories, pencil until the light went off. And so at the very, very end, when the light was flickering away and just get going down, <laughs> the words would be going down like this, <laughs> you know. Well, my sister Polly inherited my room, and you can ask her all of this because um, if you don't believe me, she will tell you that when she um, inherited it, um, that there were scribbles all over the walls like spider's webs and even on the floor under the bed. what I was doing down there I have no idea (laughs) well there's a magnificent Blackfoot Canadian um, architect and his name is Douglas Cardinal Douglas Cardinal was actually asked to come here and to do Te Papa he was one of the architects who was asked but we did not um, invite him in the end to do it but he was this marvellous friend of mine and he said to me once you start thinking about something it is already beginning to exist in the future. Isn't that amazing? Mm. Once you even begin thinking about it, it's already beginning, beginning to exist in the future. So nowadays, to make the writing process easier for me, I sometimes like to think that all I'm doing is writing myself towards a book that's already written. <laughs> and so I suppose in many ways you've been writing this book for 70 years, Witty. 78. <laughs> <laughs> 78. You could say that I had to grow up, of course, and get an education, and really, I really am still a boy from Waituhi. I managed to get my school certificate, though. I got the bare 200 marks. In those days, you had to get 200 marks. For those of you who are as old as I am, you know that it was 200 marks. Well, I did get that um, 200 marks. But I was still at 
Then I went to three high schools to try to get mm-hmm. university entrance because my grandmother, Teddy, wanted me to be a, be a lawyer, as we were um, talking about. Um, uh, and, of course, when you're a grandson of a gorgeous grandmother, what you want to do is always to fulfil her dreams, not your own. But it took me three years and I was still trying to get university entrance at 18. And then I finally did finish that and I began uh, university training and I did get through after nine years. Nine years, most people take three <laughs> with C's and a B minus. And um, my dad sent me a telegram saying, Congratulations, about time. <laughs> but even the tortoise didn't take this long. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> But uh, like my writing, my life has progressed by way of many circularities. It spirals backwards and forwards. And there's another story here. We were talking about this earlier. Um, Because the reason why it took me so long to get through was that I've always believed, and this is in Native Son, that the Māori of my generation were were forced to climb the wrong potama Mm -hmm. or the wrong um, stairway to excellence. It was uh, a potama that was defined by Pākehā practice, by the West, practices of Westminster, mm. of, UK, of the United Kingdom. And I'm glad that you, Jacinta, among, are among the new cohort of Māori academics trying to establish a new stairway based on Mātauranga Māori. Oh. <laughs> There's quite a few Māori academics in the audience here as well. <laughs> Well, anyway, then, as a young adult, I had to get a career going. And, you know, would you believe it, that one of the most magnificent accidents that happened to me was that um, I joined the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And there's a number of people mm, here. It's clear. Claire's here. And uh, I actually got Claire her job in South Pacific Division in the, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. But what happened was that I had just written Ponamu Ponamu, my first book in 1972. And the American ambassador, which is why I love America, the American ambassador was on a plane and he was going somewhere and the then Prime Minister Norman Kirk was on the same plane. So the American ambassador gave the book to Mr Norman Kirk. And Mr Norman Kirk then gave it to the Secretary of um, Foreign Affairs, um, uh, Frank Corner, and he was the one who asked me to join the diplomatic service. And so it was like, pass the parcel. <laughs> uh, passing me along. Well, the thing was, I already had a job in the post office, which I loved. <laughs> so when they asked me to go, I said, well, what's foreign affairs? I mean, do any of you know what foreign affairs was? <laughs> well, I didn't know what it was, and I didn't really want to go at all. But I said, OK, I'll try you out for six weeks. Well, I tried them out for six weeks, and I didn't like them. But when I went back to, for, um, to the post office, my job wasn't open anymore. <laughs> And Fred Layton said to me, you don't belong to us anymore, you belong to them. So there have been these mentors, these yeah. people who have, by their own belief in who we are, have seen something about us. And Fred gave me up to these strange people in foreign affairs. So they were good to me. Um, when I came down here to Dunedin to take up the Burns Fellowship, in 1975, I had to put an application into to Frank Corner, and um, when he approved my application, he wrote that if Mr. Ihimaira wishes the ministry to become Lorenzo de Medici to his Michelangelo, <laughs> far be it for us to stand in his way. <laughs> How great is that? 
But, of course, I couldn't maintain writing at the same time as I was a diplomat, so I had to choose either to be a bad diplomat and a good writer or a good writer or, or, or a bad writer and a good diplomat. And I've often thought just into that in an alternate universe that there is another witty in diplomacy and he's now running the United Nations. <laughs> So then I made two massive attempts to write the Pudako. And the first one was with the editor of Landfall, Robin Dudding. Some of you will know him. And then 20 years after that with Brad Harmy. Mm. Brad knows everything about Pudako. And Brad has about three cabinets of um, research that we had. But at that stage, I think I was still trying to write it as an ethnography, not as, a, an, ex- as an exciting piece of, of work for... Um, the new generation. And then, of course, I was bloody scared. I was really scared to do it. And I think that's a really important theme that um, would be be useful to spend a little bit of time on that. So what were you scared of? Well, um, it it, it really... I have a a cousin, Arapeta Blanc, or Arapeta Carr. And Arapeta was talking with me one day about why it was that I do these things so fast. And she said to me, you know, the reason is that um, uh, you, you don't understand. You don't understand e- e- enough. Whereas we try to process everything according to, um, to Māori thought. You know, we really do take account of all of these things. Uh, you just go ahead and do it. And she said, I think it, I think it must be because um, somehow or another your, your, your nannies, your queer, your, 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 your kraua, um enabled you to do these things that we feel that we can't do. Um, so the, the scary part was that I had, by the time I was 78, understood that um, this was sacred knowledge. It was Matauranga Māori, which early uh, tohunga historians and storytellers in the Pacific and Aotearoa had allowed access, reluctantly, to Pākehā ethnographers. But it was still tapu all the same. And some of those inspiring tohunga, like uh, Mōihi Te Matarohanga of Kahungunu, later regretted telling the Pūrāko, but realised that the world was changing and that for Māori to advance in the Pākehā world, they must have their ur-texts, or what are known as their, their, origin, their origin stories, their prototypic origin stories. Well, a manuscript of his Pūrāko was compiled, and he himself removed the tapu from it. He cooked kumara on a fire, and then he placed the book on top of um, the cooked kumara, so that the manuscript was then associated with a common thing. That made the manuscript available to all without restrictions. And what tears me up inside and makes me feel very, very sorry is his personal sacrifice in doing this. So I owe Te Matorohonga and others, you have them here, Matiaho Te Morihu, all those people like him are the ones that, whom we... And I owe the greatest thanks because they allowed us in this generation to to do this work. They took the tapu off it. 
And I think that aroha comes through right in the first few pages of the book, and in many ways the book is dedicated to them, isn't it? Well, um, they still inhabit the room behind my eyes. They did not deny us their knowledge. They gave it freely. When I took up the challenge to create the restorative text, all I was trying to do was gather up that thread that they had begun, that ahotapu, and tie it or retie it to the present. Um, the last person to do this in a very comprehensive way was Sir Peter Buck with the Vikings of the Sunrise in 1935, I think that was. Um, and you see, he actually came down here to Otago to do his training. Mm. He didn't take nine years like I did. And he later went to Yale. Well, Yale doesn't factor at all in my, in my training, so I didn't have that. Well, I tell you, if you had been passing my house in Hearn Bay during the six months that I was writing this, Jacinta, you would have heard a lot of karakia circling it, asking those early Māori tohunga to, for their forgiveness that I was even thinking of doing this mahi aroha mai. And also, um, I told you that I had, was pressing on um, and uh, doing the, um, the Waka stories. And my father would have told me, you know, you are really mad. You're getting yourself into a lot of trouble. Um, well, since the book's publication, I've been hiding behind a rock. Otherwise, someone might come along and shove a tayaha up my bum. <laughs> I hope there's nobody in the audience who will want to do that. But honestly, you know, I couldn't be stopped. I just couldn't be stopped. And why not? Well, one reason, and not many people know this, is that when I was 17, a Māori psychic told me that I would die before I was 30. So I'm way past my use-by date. (laughs) But every year since 30 has been a bonus to me. And I had to make the year that I was 77 matter. And there are other political reasons, and Waitang- they are Waitangi reasons, because there comes a time when you read all the badly told, incorrect or inaccurate pūraka on the internet, and there's a hell of a lot of it there, about Tāne separating earth and sky, or Māori defeating Hinenui Te Pō, or you pick up a children's book by a New Zealand author, Māori or Pākehā, where the story is so sanitised, so cartoonish, and has really bad gender or sexual politics. And you realise that they are still taking their course from Sir George Grey, among others, and you say, enough is enough. So you go back to the source before the 1850s, to the well, before it started to be poisoned. And dumbass you, or me in my case, you start to pour clear water into it. At least that's what I've tried to do with this book. And can you tell us something about these tupuna? I've even done something even better. (laughs) I'm going to show them to you. This. Well, this is the this first one um, <laughs> is your paternal grandmother, is it? Yeah, this is Teria, and no prize for guessing who the little child is. <laughs> and I owe this great lady for my race and gender politics. So I'm just going to take a little time to just talk about this because I was five and going to school at uh, Waituhi Primary School. Anybody here from Waituhi? No. Okay. And when I came back, my grandmother was waiting for me um, side the side of the road, and she said, so what great knowledge did you learn today? And I said, I learned uh, a nursery rhyme. And she said, what's that? And so you're going to say this nursery rhyme with me, Jack and Jill. One, two. 
Jack and Joe went up the hill to fetch a barrel of water. Jack fell down and broke the ground. Well, isn't that nice? You say it exactly as you learnt it. <laughs> and rhythm, you know, I think you've turned into five-year-olds yourself. Well, the first question that my grandmother asked me, Teddy, or that lady up there, was, well, who's Jack? Why couldn't he be Tame? And who's Jill? Why couldn't she be Aroha? So she was saying, you know, I mean, you know, the story is about these characters, but in your culture, you know, why can't you change the character? Why aren't they about people in our culture? And what's Jack doing wearing a crown? <laughs> you know, it's his own fault if he breaks it when he falls down. And then she said, and why are they going up a hill to fetch water? <laughs> what a strange place to put a well. <laughs> so she was trying to teach me that actually I was going to be going into a world where the story was different, where the, um, the outcomes were different, where people... And I was going to be going into that same strange place where people built wells on tops of hills. Mm. So then the next day I came back from school I, I, and she was waiting again. I honestly didn't want to tell her what it was, but it was <laughs> Little Miss Muffet. <laughs> One, two... So she said, so who's Miss Muffet? Why can't she be Miss Mahapihi? And what is a tuffet? Well, I didn't know what a tuffet was. How many of you know what a tuffet is? Ah, three people. <laughs> so she was trying to, you know, me, a five-year-old, trying to um, show me that actually uh, you shouldn't really take everything for granted. What occurs in way? Okay, most of you know that. And then she said, and why, what a silly girl to be afraid of a spider. Why didn't she just take it in her, in her hand and put it out of harm's way, take your order to it, and, uh, and put it out of harm's way? So because our valley was one that's filled with spiders, and I've written a book about her called The Matriarch, mm. you know, in which the, the main character, she's an allegorical spider. Um, so... Then, and then, you know, my sisters and I, we um, then regendered that, that particular um, story because there's a whole lot of gender politics going on it, going on it. And so, for instance, with the Jill and Jack thing, we went around the house screaming at the top of our voices, Jill and Jack went up the track <laughs> so that Jill would come first to fetch a pail of water. Jill fell down and broke her crown, but it was Jack who came tumbling after and then with the other one, the Little Miss Muffet one, that's a really interesting one. If you go Little Master Muffet rather than Little Miss Muffet, because Little Miss Muffet has had a lot of blame put on her since that nursery rhyme. If it's Little Master Muffet um, sat on his tuffet, eating his curds and whey, along came a spider and sat down beside him, what would Miss Master Muffet do? Squash it. <laughs> So it's also, it also then depends mm. on what story you hear. And again, it's that kind of story that is anathemic to Māori practice and to Māori culture. So she was teaching me from a very, very early age to really look at the world 
and from a Māori perspective, from a tino rangatiratanga's perspective. And really all I've ever been doing is writing that Māori story ever since. What an amazing photo to have as well. It's gorgeous. I think we've got a second photo to share now. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's my, that was my reality. <laughs> and uh, I'm not in this particular um, uh, photo um, because um, I'm the one who's taking it. And so already by that stage in my life, and I was about 11 in this particular, at this particular time, I was looking at everybody, you know, even if they didn't want me to look at them. I mean, they used to call me Witty Boy Walton. So there I was. And um, so these are the people who have kept me real. And they're the reason why I always say to people that I'm actually not an artist. I'm a shearer who writes. Or I'm an artisan. I'm not an artist. I'm an artisan. I'm a worker in a skilled trade, like a shearer um, is. When I was writing, my father would say to me, oh, you know, you've got such an easy job. And I said, I said to him, no, it's not an easy job. It's like digging in bloody fence posts. Mm-hmm. Because that's what it is to me. It's like digging in fence posts. It's being an artisan. And I would not be happy if my work was just beautiful. It has to be functional. In the case of navigating the stars, it also has to be instructive. A handbook for the mukapuna as they walk into what I call my ancient, their ancient futures. This book had to be about good and inclusive governance. I'm that old now, you know. I can, I can inflect this book with the kind of knowledge that I've come to um, at this age. So the book is also about good and inclusive governance. It's about treating women with respect and standing up against domestic violence in the story of Hina Uri. It's about establishing protocols by which we can treat another equitably, equally and with justice in this country. It's about understanding the holistic nature of the planet, conserving plants and fish species and protecting waterways from degradation. It's about holding world leaders uh, to account. When I was in Korea, I was in this marvellous, marvellous seminar where the professors all said to me, this is what we must do. We must hold all of our world leaders to account And we have to tell them that large animals should not fight. They should not fight each other because all the grasses beneath their feet will get trampled. Isn't that great? So then that's why this book became what it is because I could hear all of these voices, these voices, these ancestors who were sitting inside my head And I learned from people like you too. So every day I would go down and it would just be spontaneous writing down what had happened during the day, what people had said to me. If I was still writing it today, I'd probably be putting you in it. (laughs) (laughs) So in the process, nui ake tēnei take i navigating the stars became far greater than just me and I'm grateful for that. So next one. We've got this one here. Um, again, it's very special to you, I know. There are many, many tupuna in this third photograph. And it's a panorama of an interior of your meeting house. Yes, this is Rungapai in Waitahi. Mm-hmm. Have any of you been there? It's the, it's the Ringatū Cathedral um, of this country. Um, if anything explains or defines me, this meeting house is it. 
And when I sought permission from the photographer, Mr. McDuff Everton, to publish the photo, I told him that actually this was what my heart looks like. And in his reply, giving his permission, he said, well, there won't be any fee for the scan of your heart. (laughs) But then this is as good an explanation of the inspiration for Navigating the Stars because the book is actually my written version of the painted meeting house in my valley. It always reminds me to take all my work back to the centre, in my case, Rungo Pai, to make sure that the taproot of my story goes into this uh, meeting house. The meeting house is there to balance um, the, all of my story's centrifugal spiral tendencies to go outward by reminding me to bring them centripetally back. Like my mokopona Ben, because we still go swimming together, he's nine, and... Uh, he likes to go further out than I actually like him to go, so I end up going out even further than him, going like this, but then I end up far away from him. And he's always going, Papa, Papa, come back, come back. <laughs> so this is the, the meeting house that always calls to me, come back with me, come back to the centre. It was created by young artisans, so they gave me my licence to reboot the stories, to connect the dots between one set of stories and the next and add fresh and and original uh, material. It also reminds me, because we live in this Pākehā world, as you were saying Mm -hmm. earlier, to bring uh, a Māori set of eyes onto the job. And so that meant decolonising the story, enabling them to escape the frames that they've been trapped in for many, many years. And you won't understand this, but... You know, we all do this as, as, as writers. We create these huge scenarios about why we do this work. And then, in all humility, to admit ko ngā kōrero keo, ko ngā kōrero keo. This is the knowledge that I know. I acknowledge I don't know everything. And others have their own knowledge. So I'm hoping that your generation, the genera- Ben's generation, mm. will carry on the work of reclaiming all these stories for all of us in this room, for all of us. I also had to try to be as truthful about my approach as I could be. And my sister Gay will say, well, you know, well, he doesn't know everything. And I honestly don't. <laughs> so, you know, you try your best and you hope that, uh, you know, you, something doesn't come back and bite you on the ass. And in the end, what the hell, you take up your paddle, hoya to waka, Aim the canoe at the horizon and hope your work is not too stink. Hope for the best and that you will find land. And then there's a, a, a wonderful proverb that I like, and it is, He iti hoki te mokokoa. He iti hoki te mokokoa. Nana i kakata te kahikatea. The caterpillar may be small, but it can gnaw through the kahikatea tree. So while I've been gnawing away, I've tried to decolonise, deracialise, desanitise and strip away the stories of all their accretions and try and unpoison them. Because there were times when I really had to suck away the poison as if they were a snake bite. And where the stories had been diminished and had lost their original power and you try to untwist and unwarp them. And then you start building the world again so that it's like this. Mm. And so, in many ways, uh, you know, I've, I've always, I make no apology for writing what I call the Māori sublime. 
that's what I do. You know, I'm trying to write the Māori sublime. Others, like Patricia, they, you know, we all write different uh, Māori, but mine, what I'm trying to do is attempt to, to write the Māori sublime, and so that's what I've tried to do with Navigating the Stars. And then this, this photo. This is the last photo. <laughs> okay, ready? <laughs> <laughs> this is witty as he's 16. Yeah. I still like, look like that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm introducing it because I want to acknowledge the existence of cruelty and irrationality in our lives. Oh, good. Um, because there were many things that I had to overcome in my journey as a writer and in actually being able to traverse those years between 11 and 77, which I was last year. And sometimes I think the most triumphant accomplishment any of us can achieve is, is to actually survive. Um, there aren't many photographs of myself at this age because I destroyed most of them. I went through something that no boy or girl should go through. And this is that when I was nine, just after my grandmother, Ateria, died, I was raped by an adult relative. Now, I never ever, during that time that I was nine up to um, 73, never told anybody, because that's what men do. We don't tell people. I never told anybody at all. I just put that boy to one side, that beautiful boy up there, <coughs> I said, I'm sorry, I can't deal with you. I'm going to have to. So I split myself into two people, that boy and the, the man that I became. And those of you in the audience who have had a similar thing happen to you will know why you struggle with yourself, you loathe yourself. You develop a terrible sense of shame and guilt. And in my case, I battled it for seven years as a kid and then a teenager and thought I had hidden it well behind the facade of the boy in the photograph. But you know, you never can. You can't, can you? You never can. The mask slips, and sometimes other people see what's behind it, and among them was my English teacher, Mr. Grono. And he asked me, at 16, what happened to you, Witty? He said, what happened? And when he said that, I thought, what's the use? If he, a Pākehā, can see me, then everybody can or will soon. And did I want them to do that? No. And so that boy up there tried to commit suicide. He almost succeeded, except that a friend of my father's, Brother Mohi, I was Mormon, was going by the house and he said, oh, you know, I think I'll go and see how witty is doing, whether or not he's home, for one thing, you know, not going out and robbing banks or whatever, and um, is he doing his homework? And uh, he came and he saw that um, Dad's um, garage um, door was down to the car, and he heard the car running, and he came in and he saw that the garage was filled with fumes mm -hmm. because what I had tried to do was to put the, the hose into the, um, oh, into the tank and then put it into the car, and I was just waiting for it to have its effect. So he pulled me out. So that boy up there tried to commit suicide that way. I didn't, I didn't do it by trying to run the car into a tree, which is the way that most boys um, do it. 
And I write about this in, in Native Son, the attempt and the consequent struggles with issues of identity and masculinity and also indigenous identity. Mm. Because that's also to do with you know, your self-worth as a person. And, and I write about trying to reclaim my own tinodanga tanga, my own sovereignty in Native Son. But, you know, you're, your heart keeps beating and your lungs keep going in and out and in and out. And you keep on breathing. And before you know it, you've done the stuff and you're 78. If you take one step after the next and you get there. I hit the boy, you see, and did not admit to what happened to him until I was 73. So I'm honestly not a hero. I'm not a hero in that respect. I was ashamed of him, of me, of him, of me, of people finding out about what happened to him, to me, to him. So every piece of work that I do, Jacinta, is to tell the boy that it was worth it. You know, that not only those bonus years, but actually carrying on living um, has been worth the continuation of, of breathing. So this is my chance to thank him, and this is why he's up there. Because in a very strange way, he is responsible for navigating the stars. Because through my rehabilitation and reconciliation with my past, I was able to write it. And writing his life, all his bonus years, is my telling, my way of telling him that what happened to him and me, that the person who did this didn't win. Hmm. He did not hmm. win. He didn't win. So... I admitted all of this when I was 73, and I'm so proud of him now. I am. Mm. I'm just very so proud of him. Yeah. Tēnā <laughs> um, koe We really acknowledge your bravery um, and... And being able to share that, and and that means a lot, I think. I'm thinking of all our young ones who are going through things similar. Um, and and this is why you, we need your work, we need you in front of all our schools um, throughout our country. And so, Witty, I... Um, well, you know... He to you. Then you turn your eyes forward. This mm. is the thing, isn't it? I mean, what you're doing is you're not just doing it for yourself. You're doing it for a new generation, for a New Zealand, an Aotearoa New Zealand that we hope will, mm-hmm. we will be. I was told by someone on a plane, he said that he, the last time, he was coming back from overseas, from Australia, and he said that when he left this country, it was New Zealand. When he's come back, it's turned into Aotearoa. <laughs> and in many ways, that's what we're trying to do. You know... We look to the second decade of this new millennium. I looked to them and I saw the, uh, the way that our younger generation loves Superman and Spider-Man and the Avengers, the stories of Thor and Hercules and the Trojans and you think, but our stories are ones that matter. They're the ones that they should be guided by. 
They're as great as the Greek myths, sagas full of heroes, heroines, traitors, love, treachery, and other crunchy stuff. Right under our noses here in Aotearoa are stories that are as huge and as great as Homer's Iliad, gods as magnificent as Zeus and Hades, goddesses as beautiful as Jacinta, and as wise as Palestina and Aphrodite. Heroes as magnificent as Perseus and monsters as magnificent as Medusa or the Kraken. So I put aside my fears of being zapped from above by lightning. And even though, even though you went to Tekaraka District High School, you knew that you could do it. You're not Homer, but what you tried to do was Homeric. And at this age... When I am no longer young, well, Albert Camus and I quote him in the book, he put his finger on the question, why now, witty? He said that when we have passed a certain age, the soul of the child we were and the souls of the dead from whom we have sprung come to lavish on us their riches and spells. Mm. And I have truly been lavished upon. And my tipuna cast their spells everywhere in this book. So, as I say, <coughs> I, I, I hope that this will be a book that you feel that you can press noses with. I hope that you will forgive me for continuing to write the Māori sublime. I hope that the book stories will start inspiring a new generation to think of the mana, the ihi, the wehi, the dread, the aroha, the energy, and in particular the potential that is here in this land, this sea, these mountains and rivers. Because this is not Middle Earth. This is Māori Earth. <laughs> it is not Middle Earth. It is Māori Earth. Do you know the movie Clash of the Titans? Well, you know, I mean, I'm a bad B-movie addict. Well, in the Clash of the Titans, there's a fabulous cry that Zeus makes when he unlooses the kraken on mortals. Well, it sounds better in Māori. It is, Wete wete te feke. Release the tanifa. So, I want us all to say that with me. Wete wete te feke. One, two. Wete wete te feke. Release the tanifa. We are going to be releasing the tanifa of all of our energies, and we're doing it for the mokopuna. Na reira tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. We now have to sing our waiata. You are going to have to sing the waiata. <laughs> so it is pōkarekareana, and I will give you a note, unless one of the ladies in the, in the group would like to give us a note. Who's one of our singers? <laughs> okay, I'll do it then. Oh, no, that's too high. <laughs> oh, okay, one, two. Oh, kare kare ana na waio rua iti atu koehine. Na <laughs>
ਮਤਿ ਆਹੋ ਕਿਤੇ ਅਰੋਹਾ ਓ ਯੂ ਸਿੰਗ ਸੋ ਬਿਊਟੀਫੁਲੀ ਵਿਲ ਡੂ ਦ ਕੋਰਸ ਵਾਂਸ ਮੋਰ ਹੇ This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival podcast was brought to you with funding from Copyright Licensing New Zealand and the expertise of ORFM. The festival also offers thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council and the Otago Community Trust. Otipoti Collective Against Sexual Abuse supports people of any gender who are survivors of sexual violence and their supporters, including friends and whānau, to progress towards healing. You can contact them on 474-1592 or visit their website okasa.org.nz. That's O-C-A-S-A dot org dot N-Z. However, if you or anyone else is in danger, call 111. If this program has raised issues and made you worry about your or someone else's mental health, here are some ways to get help. The best person to contact is your GP or local mental health provider. However, if you or someone else is in danger or endangering others, call 111. If you need to talk to someone, the following free helplines operate 24-7. 1737-NEED-TO-TALK? Call or text 1737. Lifeline 0800 543 Youthline 0800-376-633 or text 234 between 8am and midnight. Depression Helpline 0800-111-757 and Samaritans 0800-726-666. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.